Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. A few months back, we had Eric Hanyashek and Steve Rivkin on the podcast to discuss their research on Dallas Independent School District's Accelerating Campus Excellence Program and its Principal Excellence and Teacher Excellence Initiatives. The man who implemented those reforms, Mike Miles, served as superintendent of Dallas ISD from 2012 to 2015. And when we released the episode in May, he was serving as the CEO of Third Future Schools. However, on June 1st, following a state takeover of Houston Independent School District, Mike Miles was named as the next superintendent of Houston. Since then, he's made quite a splash. So I thought I'd invite him onto the podcast to discuss the reforms he is implementing in Houston and his views on district leadership and school reform more broadly. Mike Miles, welcome to the report card. Glad to be here. So you became the new superintendent of Houston ISD a couple months ago. What are your priorities in Houston? Well, right now the priority is to start the school year off well, but we have a number of things that we've got to do. You probably know that this is a state intervention district. In other words, I was appointed by the commissioner of education and we have a board of managers who replace the elected board. The interventions have three exit criteria. So I actually have three charges. Number one is not to have any schools with multiple years of D or F status. In Texas, we have an A through F rating for schools. The second charge is to ensure we're compliant with our special education laws, the state laws and the federal laws for special education and to improve special education services. And the third bucket is to ensure that we have stronger governance, a more effective governance. Uh, But my charge is bigger than that. My goal is to transform Houston Independent School District so that we prepare kids for the year 2035 and that we also close the traditional achievement gap as well. So that's the big mission, and we're already starting to work on those goals. And you've come out of the gate strong, and this is not your first rodeo. To use my Texas terminology, you were the head of Dallas ISD. Briefly, what's similar and what's different between the challenges you face leading Houston and what you faced in Dallas? Yeah, I have to say first that Houston's not Dallas, Dallas is not Houston. People sometimes take those comparisons. But they're both large urban districts. And at the time, Dallas was way behind on their proficiency and where they should have been systemically. And Houston's the same way. We are behind the large urbans. We're behind the national average on our proficiency. We have a large achievement gap. Now, don't get me wrong. There are many good things happening, too. So I don't want to paint a brush that says, Everything's gone to hell in a handbasket. That's not the case. But it is also true uh, that in both cases, Dallas and in Houston, uh, we have huge disparities. In Houston in particular, we're like a a tale of two cities, two districts. We have a lot of good things going on, a lot of schools succeeding. We have some of the best schools in the nation in part of our district. But there's a whole part of the district that is being underserved and where the students are not getting the best education possible. And that's the biggest challenge. 
The other thing that's com comparable Dallas and Houston is we have a number of systems, processes that are so bureaucratic and so convoluted. It takes forever. It, in Dallas, just to give you one example, when I got to Dallas, we had 880 teacher vacancies at the start of the school year. 880. Now, there's 10,000 teachers, but still 9% of your workforce, that's a, that's a lot of people out. And you can imagine what that does for kids. It's not good, right? So um, part of the reason is it took so long and so many people to handle the paperwork and hit the right keys on the, on the keyboard to hire just one person. And I get to here in Houston, it's the same exact way. All, your, all the principals would say, it's just a, a nightmare to try to hire one person. It takes weeks to do so. So uh, just like in Dallas, I, I've had to already try to clean that system up so that we can hire people quickly, even over the summer, qualify people quickly over the summer. So those are the sorts of things I'm finding that are, are similar. Uh, obviously, there are particular things in Houston that aren't similar to Dallas. But as a large uh, urban district, uh, lots to compare. And you brought it up. So I got to ask, what number of vacancies do you have to fill in Houston before school starts here in the next month? Yeah, what I've, and most of my colleagues can identify with this. If you're hiring a whole bunch of teachers in July, you're already wrong. You know, we're behind and that should never have happened. Um, last year, the district started with 644 teacher vacancies at the start of the school year. Uh, the year before that, I think they had 358. Houston has, you know, 11,200 teachers, but even 644 is, is way too many. I mean, just think about the impact on, on kids. I don't want to get too far ahead of the board. So just give you an average number. We've been hiring over the last 60 days. We're down to around 270, 250, somewhere in there. I'll, I'll give a more precise number tomorrow. I'm getting those numbers today. Um, so we'll be well below last year, and we're trying to get to zero by the start of school year, which is August 28th. So one of your main initiatives in Houston is the new education system, or NES. Tell us a little bit about the NES. How many schools is it targeted for, and what does this NES look like? So it's important to start with some context. I believe the American education system has largely failed. The promise of helping kids get a great education so that they break the cycle of poverty and have greater economic mobility has largely been unanswered. We've broken that promise. Part of the evidence of that is the achievement gap in the nation has hardly moved in 20 years. In fact, it moved a couple points for black students in America in reading, and then we lost those couple points during COVID. Even before COVID, we weren't doing a good job. The same thing applies to Houston. We've not been able to close our proficiency gap. We continue to have low proficiency. Meanwhile, technology continues to advance at an incredible rate. I'm even alarmed at how fast AI is moving. We knew it would be fast, but if you just look at the last year with ChatGPT or any number of, of uh, technologies, 
and artificial intelligence. And it's just incredible the pace at which the workplace is changing and the skills that we need are, are changing. So I believe this is the last generation of kids that will go through public schools before the skills gap is locked in. The achievement gap is almost locked in now. Uh, and I say that because if you look at the data and you look at all large urbans, it's almost locked in. There's not much change. And I don't see many large urbans or school districts doing much that's fundamentally different systemically. Fundamentally. And that means you have to look at your underlying principles of education. Uh, I think the same thing's going to happen with the skills gap. Medium skills jobs are leaving the workplace. Uh, some are being created, but not as fast as those that are leaving. Some uh, higher skilled jobs are being created, but this may be the first time in history where the technology doesn't grow as many jobs as it's taking. And if you have low skills, you cannot read, cannot do math, can't critically think, the odds of you getting a high skilled jobs is even lower. And our charge is different. We have to change not only the achievement gap, but also the skills gap. And we have probably eight years to do that. There will always be schools that break the mold. There will always be kids that do it. I'm talking about the profession as a whole, the country as a whole. So given that, uh, and you need that kind of context to understand that we need a different education system. I'm not in Houston to tweak it. I'm not doing programmatic changes. I'm not tackling one high school or one middle school at a time. That's an F campus. That's not going to work. That's what the profession does. We do one thing. It's incremental. It's not systemic. And that's why the whole system fails. Superintendents that try to do big things get pushed back. And so they draw back on it. Instead of doing two or three things, they do one. Instead of doing that one thing well, they water it down because there are 20 sacred cows out there. So we need to do whole scale systemic reform. If you look at the vision for Destination 2035, that's our strategic plan, you'll see that we want to do whole scale systemic reform for 150 of our 273 schools in the next three or four years, 150. And uh, whole scale reform is what NES means. New education system schools conduct whole scale systemic reform. What does that look like? That looks like taking many key initiatives and doing it all at once because all of these things are integrated. So for example, our staffing model is different. We don't use substitutes. We staff in a way where we have teacher apprentices and learning coaches that really can help uh, the school and the kids with our instructional model. They're paid on what we call hospital model pay scale. That means the ranges, we have a range for every grade based on the value that they bring to the organization. Kind of like doctors, meaning you have brain surgeons, anesthesiologists, we have general practitioners, all of them play a role, all of them are important, but some bring more value than others and that's why they get paid differently. The same thing with school. In this model, we have to be able to tell teachers, look, sixth grade reading, you need a brain surgeon. Third grade PE, I'm sorry. You know, I'm one of the few who will say out loud, I'm sorry, you don't bring the same value to the educational situation in a turnaround school. 
where kids can't read. Uh, you know, and if you don't want to hear that, then this is not the place to work. Now, the third grade PE teacher is still going to get paid a, a fairly good wage. And that's the other thing we're bringing a lot higher wages to the teachers in the NES schools. We also pay stipends for teachers in the NES. And we'll talk about NES aligned schools here in a minute. So that's another difference is how we compensate people and how it's tied to effectiveness. Uh, The instructional model is different. The instructional model is highly differentiated so that kids who are ahead get challenged, kids who are behind get more time. We have um, using technology, webcams, uh, Zoom IDs for every teacher. They're always up and running. How we handle discipline is a little bit different. We have experiences for kids because we believe that kids not only need reading, writing, math, science, but they need different experiences. So seventh graders get to travel out of state. Eighth graders travel out of country. If they, you know, they have to meet 92% attendance and no suspensions, things like that. But the purpose is to grow their perspective. We also provide them with different experiences like piano, martial arts, uh, photography, dance, These are on top of electives. So all these things together we're doing. uh, Oh, and a different, slightly different curriculum. Yes, we still have to do reading, writing, math, science, but we also do really strong science of reading curriculum, and we do art of thinking. Art of thinking is information literacy, problem solving, critical thinking, and communications. Every kid, third grade through 10th grade, will be taking art of thinking class. So, Mike, when you lay all this out and true to your promise, it sounds like a whole scale reform, not marginal. One thing that makes some sense of this, I think, is there's about 27 NES schools that are initially targeted, but you opened up the options and you got some more to jump on board. Is that correct? That is correct. 28 schools is what we chose because what we're trying to do is what Ted Colderi, researcher, calls split screen. I knew just from my Dallas experience, and and most of us know who studied change, you can't take 273 schools and do what I just said. I mean, the system can't tolerate that. You kill the patient while you're while you're trying to fix the patient. So, um, split screen suggests that you start with a smaller subset of of schools, and you uh, really do whole scale reform with that group, and then over time. Uh, you move more schools into that new system. So 5 to 10% probably makes sense. That's my number. And so we started with 28 schools. That's pushing it because that's 10% of the schools. Uh, When we were training the principals the second week of June, uh, all the principals in the entire district and the assistant principals, uh, we described what the new education system schools would be like the supports they would receive. Oh yeah, the the other thing is we are providing lesson plans, demonstrations of learning, answer keys, the PowerPoint, uh, the differentiated assignments for the teachers of the core subjects in the NES schools. So that teachers can come in and they start 15 minutes before class starts and they leave 15 minutes after and they are done. There's a good work-life balance. We're going to work them hard while they're there, uh, but they don't have to make copies. They don't have to make lessons. They don't grade papers outside of class. 
you know, we're trying to treat them like true professionals and really take advantage of the skill that they have, which is providing great quality instruction. And also centralizing curriculum, right? I mean, you're giving them the curriculum so that you know what's going on in these schools. And it's not up to teachers how they're going to tailor it. That's right. And a lot of it is centralized. Take the budget, for example. The system right now in, in Houston is very autonomous and it is not working. And the budgets are crazy, the school budgets. It takes too much time. We have several schools that go way over budget. And when I say way over budget, three or $400,000 over budget and nothing happens. So we've taken that away from the principals too, and they actually like it. So yes, a lot more centralization. So back to the principals training, I was telling them the types of supports and just in between the breaks, several principals came up to me and said, hey, how can we get the same supports? How can we be part of this NES? And I told them, well, look, we've already picked the 28 schools in the three feeder patterns. So for your listeners, a feeder pattern is a set of elementary, middle, and high schools that feed into each other. So three feeder patterns in 28 schools. And they said, well, you know, we would like to do it too. So I, in, in one of the sessions, I just asked all the principals in that room, I said, you know, how many of you, if you had the opportunity, would voluntarily do this new education system? And about a dozen people raised their hand. So I thought, okay, well, let's see what we can do for you guys. Because I've been pushing them to, to think in different ways. And I said, you know, not just NES. All of us need to step up and reimagine what we're going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grow the NES over time, but all of us need to think about the future of our kids and what our kids need, and we're behind the curve. I need everybody to step up. And um, so these 12 people or so, if we could help them, let's do it. Go back to my office, talk to the team, and they said, okay, yeah, we think we can do it, but let's see how many actually do want to do it because, you know, just because you say you do in, in public doesn't mean you will. So we put out a survey, we gave them a week to respond. And I remember that it was Friday morning, the day the survey was due, 62 schools, additional schools said they wanted to join the NES model. And my staff, uh, freaked out is not the right word, but they were very concerned about, is it even possible to do I mean, 28 is hard enough. You know, do we have the time to do the training, to get the equipment, to do all the things we need to do to prepare for, for NES? Um, and the school year is right around the corner. And then there was also some worry that some of the principals may not have known, you know, exactly what they were getting into, even though we had a session to say, we're going to put out a survey. And about 85 people came to that session uh, we're going to put out a survey, but this is what it means. So uh, we decided to do one more opportunity to see if they really wanted to do, if they really understood what it meant to be a whole-scale systemic reform and lose your autonomy, have to do the curriculum. We also invited media to that meeting, by the way, because we wanted, you know, your twisting arms and stuff like that. People had no idea what really was happening. It's like that we're trying to, if there, any arms were twisted, we were trying to untwist arms and, you know, give them a third arm or something because we thought that 62 was way too many. Anyway, 
We held the meeting again and said, look, this is what we mean. Uh, this is what whole scale reform means. At the same time, some of the members of the team wanted to limit it to just DNF's camps, the, you know, the lowest performing ones, and maybe just do 20 more or 12 more, something like that. And But there was a couple others, and, and I agreed with them. Look, we have a coalition of willing that we never have. No, I, I didn't experience this in Dallas, didn't experience it in Harrison, school district where I was a superintendent in Colorado Springs. And, you know, we talk about a coalition of willing and it happens to be a big group. And so when the next deadline came for them to say we are in or we're not, 57 schools ultimately had volunteered. And uh, so now we have 85 total. So that's about 20% of the schools that weren't on the original NES list, right? That's right. And so now total, we have about 30% of the schools in the district are in this NES slash NES aligned model. And the two are exactly the same, except the pay is different. Everybody gets a $10,000 stipend, but I told you the NES schools, the twenty original 28, are on the hospital model compensation plan, and the 57 are on the regular salary schedule that the district had already put in place before I got there, because uh, it would be way too expensive, this short notice. So both in Dallas and now in Houston, you have focused a lot on teacher pay. Is your main goal there trying to attract new and better talent or to encourage better performance out of the talent you have? It's a little bit of both, okay? Encouraging better performance among the talent we have is more the focus this summer because we're in August now and uh, school starts soon. So it was not possible to cast too wide a net. Um, but over time, what we're looking at is getting any teacher, including our own, to be more effective and to pay for that effectiveness. I think teachers should be paid a lot more. In fact, you may have questions about the teacher evaluation system that we're going to be putting forward. And the salary related to the proficient level is going to be 80000 next year. So if you're proficient, if you get evaluated at a proficient level, that's 80000 If you get one level above that, proficient two, that's $88,000 base salary. And that's how teachers should be paid. That should not be an anomaly. But having said that, you have to be effective if you're going to make that kind of salary. Yeah. So let me also ask about the centralized lesson planning. And look, you're going to get a bunch of noise about this. Some people are going to say, oh, you're curbing teacher autonomy, and that's terrible. And other folks are going to be saying, oh, you're giving them clear lines of instruction. That's good. Do you worry that highly skilled teachers who are used to creating their own lessons are going to be deterred by that? Do you see this as something that teachers might like less and their pay might offset that? Or that this is actually something that you think teachers want? Teachers want it. I don't have any doubt about that. And I know there's a lot of noise because they haven't experienced it. Uh, and some of that noise is followed closely by, we want better work-life balance. Okay, so you can't have your cake and eat it too. This model is tough to do because you have to have differentiated assignments. Not only do you have to have engaging assignments and lesson plans, lots of visuals, you also have to have differentiated assignments, four different levels of assignments every day, every lesson. 
And so um, teachers don't want to go out and find those. And there's no curriculum out there that's already designed with four differentiated assignments every day. So you're going to find out, everybody will find out, just like we've done in Third Future Schools, that's a network I came from, that teachers love to have their lessons planned. Now, they may want to tweak it. They may want to change it around a bit. They may want to pace it just slightly differently, but they love it. It takes hunting down resources away from the teacher. Why should the teacher spend two hours a night like I did when I was teaching looking for resources, especially if the textbook, the regular textbook doesn't have all the things you need to help the kids, especially in a differentiated model. So the teachers in the NES and NES aligned schools will have their lessons for them. They'll have it early so that they can work during their planning period to look at the materials. I mean, I don't know one math teacher who has ever complained about having problems, story problems provided for them. No math teacher saying, hey, I need to make my own story problems. You know, that's that's just people who haven't been in it, haven't been in the classroom, haven't looked for their own you know, story problems. So if you have story problems for me, please, I'll take them. The other thing is this. Teachers still have some autonomy to tweak the lessons the, the way they want. So let's say they're doing the, I don't know, states of matter in fourth grade, and uh, they have their favorite lesson on states of matter. Okay, well, then do your favorite lesson on states of matter. It's okay. And then when we get to the part where you're differentiating the assignments, either create your own or use the ones that are, are provided for you. And teachers have that autonomy to do that. But I guarantee you, 99% of the teachers, 95% of them will use exactly what they're provided because it's good material, it's rigorous material. And if they don't use our materials, it would take them twice as long to create equally rigorous and aligned material. And I take it, Mike, that you view this as part of the responsibility of the district, that this is not some novel approach that should be some bespoke thing for particular turnaround districts, but rather districts should provide clear curriculum, quality curriculum that teachers can actually follow. Yes. And, you know, I've developed over time. Uh, I used to train, and I, I still do a little bit, I used to train teachers and principals on curriculum alignment. You know, I followed Bob Marzano and others on how to make sure we have an aligned curriculum, a guaranteed viable curriculum. That's, that was a phrase we used 15 years ago. And we trained them on how to take the standards and make good lesson objectives out of them. We taught them how to write good demonstrations of learning tied to the TEKS. The TEKS are Texas Essential Knowledge and Skills, the standards. I used to do that. And we would train teachers on how to get resources, not just the textbook, because the textbook isn't always aligned. They say they're aligned, but they're not always aligned, you know, and so forth and so on. And, you know, it finally dawned on me that um, that's a skill. That's what curriculum developers have that not all teachers have. And so what do we really want from a teacher? We want them to be teaching in the classroom like a champion, meaning they're engaging kids. They understand the question behind the question. They can keep the pace. They can manage the classroom. They can make things, they can simplify when they need to. They can push the rigor 
Um, they engage multiple kids at one time, not just a single kid. All of those things are skills uh, to really communicate with kids, understanding Johnny's background knowledge and how you can push him forward, all of those things. And that's what we want. So if they get a lesson objective given to them that's written, tied to the teak, if they get a demonstration of learning that's already done for them, that's tied to the teak, what is wrong with that? In fact, there's nothing wrong with that, number one. Number two, it's more effective. And number three, they want that. If I put it in a textbook, would it be the same? <laughs> you know, yeah, it would be the same. I mean, so these people who are arguing about, well, you're creating it for them. Yeah, well, how many of you are using a textbook? Are you angry that we, we give you a textbook? You're not creating your own textbook. You know, so their, their arguments don't make any sense. And the other thing is, uh, I've been doing this for six years with third feature schools and they're being successful and the teachers like it. So a lot of the attention in the NES program, as well as some of the work you did in Dallas was on teachers, but principals are a pretty important part here. They've always been a point of interest to you. Is action on principals part of the NES plan? No question. So by the time you air this, uh, we will have hopefully pass the largest principal pay for performance plan in the nation. And it will start on August 28th. And that shows you how important principals are. Principals, we are giving them more decision-making, but we're also raising the level of accountability. It's like, uh, I mean, we started with, with vacancies, right? And we pulled the principals in and we said, look, I don't understand why I have to announce this, but principals, you're accountable for vacancies. It's your job. We had principals leaving for the summer. They have, you know, 10 vacancies and they're gone. It's like, okay, well, when are you coming back? August, you know, 10th. And you think you're going to hire 10, 12 people before the start of school year? No, that's not what we're going to do in this district anymore. And so we even called some principals back uh, because their main job in the summer is make sure they start the school year off with any vacancies. Now, we have to support, we have to help, we have to streamline the process, which I did because that was a crazy thing. So principals are that important. They're going to be instructional leaders. So they'll be in the classroom every day. They're APs and the, we've trained them already. We're going to continue the training on on-the-job coaching. On the job, everybody will be trained on the job, all teachers. Teachers will receive spot observations. So we're going to make the job what the job's supposed to be, which is you are the lead instructional leader. Your job is to coach, inspire, and uh, grow the teachers that you have. That's the job. So, Mike, let me ask you an impossible question. I know what your answer is. It's not teachers or principals, it's both. But if you had to do turnarounds and you could either place your bets on improving your principal or on improving your teachers without focusing on the other, what's your first choice? Yeah, like you said, it's it's both. But teachers, look, gone are the days where you have an amazing principal who then turns around to school. I understand that sentiment. You do need amazing principles. But in the end of the day, if you had amazing teachers, you could survive with the average principal. 
a great principal cannot survive well with ineffective teachers. So um, teachers is the key. But, you know, let's repeat what we started with, and that is you need both. Of course. Uh, So, Mike, we're the report card. We have a section called Grade It, and it's time for it. Let's start with Warsaw. (laughs) With with Warsaw now or? When you were there. When I was there? Um, So, um, Warsaw gets a a C plus. And the reason why they get a C plus is the day I left Poland in 1991 is the day the Suhotska government fell. So Hotska was a democratically elected prime minister and the post-communist came back in. So it was a minor, a set, not a minor, a setback to democracy and a, kind of a re-engagement of the, the communists. What did being a diplomat teach you about leading schools? I learned a lot about... Um, systems, negotiations, and uh, just making sure that you see the trend lines and you pay attention to them. All right. Next up, the relevance of most education research to your work as a superintendent. I would say A minus or B plus. And I use that because I'm thinking about good research. I use research all the time, but I know there's all kinds of research out there and, and some of it's um, not good or not relevant. For example, our profession has gone through 20 years of these battles, research on both sides on, on reading, the science of reading, whole language, balanced literacy, right? So there was research on both sides of that argument. But the strongest research and the one that went out over time is the science of reading that we now look at. That includes decoding and language comprehension. So uh, that's why I don't give it an A plus or an A. I use the research, but I qualify it. National board certification for teachers. Uh, I would say B minus. The most rigorous evaluation is on the ground in the school. And so pieces of paper matter and study matter, but, you know, on the ground, quality of instruction and your evaluation. National board certified teachers go through a long process to become nationally board certified. And most of them do have good quality of instruction. They do have, they are effective. And so I don't know if one leads to the other. But I, for my purposes, I'd rather see the person on the ground with the high quality instruction than, you know, if they came to me with the national board certification, I'd still have to see their quality of instruction. Field trips. A, field trips are really key. Uh, what we're trying to do is do larger field trips for our older kids. I, I think I already told your audience that, look, we want to take eighth graders out of country. We want to take seventh graders out of state. And so for the smaller kids, the younger kids, I mean, you know, field trips to museums or, you know, to nature or wherever that's closer, right, to the school, those would be good things for kids. Parent activism. Um, B minus. 
because you use the word activism. Parent engagement would get an A. Activism is both good and bad. So we want parents involved, but parents have specific interests. And for some communities, a small group of people think they speak for the whole. And everybody can't have what they want. Uh, so sometimes it uh, hurts what, what the district has to prioritize as a goal for the whole. So that's why it's a B minus. U.S. service academies. A plus. Well, no, let me, let me, I have to give it like a A minus. I said A plus because as a whole, the U.S. service academies provide great education and they also uh, provide civic responsibility and leadership. So that's why they get an A. Um, I said a, a minus or less than A because um, sometimes it, it becomes a little watered down uh, and maybe a little bit too political. Uh, I don't think that's a fault of any cadet, but I think you know politics finds its way into almost everything. And to the extent that they can keep politics out of it, that would be good. All right. Well, thanks for giving us your grades on Grade It. Speaking of politics and difficult decisions, you've had to make some tough calls and some decisive ones. You've made some staffing cuts right out of the gate. Can you tell us about those and what the logic behind them is? Yeah. So the first choice or first decision was, um, whether or not to push change so late, right? Coming in in June is not ideal. Most of the things I we've already done, we would have had six, seven, eight months of discussion and planning and all of that. And so the question is, do we wait a year and do what most districts do, which is they come in, they do a 90-day listening tour, then they form a bunch of committees for input for the strategic plan. They work with the board on getting input from the community, and then they come out with a strategic plan in April or May of their first year, and that strategic plan is watered down and incremental. So could have done the same thing back in August. But I don't do strategic plans like that anyway, even in, in Dallas. So I decided and the team decided that, no, we're not going to wait a year, which meant that we had to make some big decisions and disruptive changes right off, off the bat. So the central office was already too big. That was identified by the last administration. Central office expenditures and people grew by 61% in six years. And at the same time, the district lost 27,000 kids. So if you know anything about organization or schools or districts, then you know that's crazy, right? That's out of sync. And so there was a lot of positions to cut. So we reorganized right away, knowing that we would need to save some money to put into the programs we're trying to do because the budget wasn't looking that good either. So we decided to do that and we were able to cut uh, over 2,000 positions. And to be fair, two-thirds of those positions were vacant or we didn't fill, and, and neither did the last administration starting in April or May. They were just left unfilled when a person left. So it wasn't 2,200 people. You know, it was uh, 2,200 positions. 
And those savings are going to be plowed primarily back into teacher pay. Is that the main line item for the cost of the NES schools? Uh, teacher pay and other uh, efforts for the for the NES schools and the district as a whole. So I'm sure you've heard this before. There are folks who are going to be critical of measures that are narrowly targeted on math and reading tests or the STAR tests in Texas. How do you deal with those assertions? Well, you're just focused on tests. I'm not questioning this, but I wonder how you deal with those arguments. It's like how I deal with most arguments because it's it's not just about that. It's about almost everything when you move someone's cheese or you touch some sacred cow. I try to understand the kernel of truth of what they're talking about, right? Um, that's the first thing. But I've been at this so long, I know that you have to stay focused on what you really are trying to do. And then the onus is on me and the administration to explain what we're really trying to do. So I know people will, will argue test prep. I, you know, that's, a, that's a phrase that people throw out all the time. They have for 30 years. And so I, I say, what are we really trying to do? We're trying to get kids to read better. And I don't care how you measure it. Let's, let's not use the STAR exam because the STAR is the um, Texas assessment. It's a summative. It's good for that data, but it doesn't help with progress monitoring. So use whatever you want uh, that's nationally normed. So we can use Dibbles. Dibbles is another literacy test. We can use uh, Circle, which is a kindergarten pre-K test. We can... We can use NWEA map tests. I mean, choose your assessment then. But in the end of the day, we have to know whether a kid can read or not. That's it. What we're doing is about reading, and it's at all grade levels. Uh, and then the, the expenditures we're spending have nothing to do with reading and math in many cases. Like the art of thinking, there's no, there's no exam. We get no credit for art of thinking. What we get is better prepared kids for the year 2035. No one's going to measure me on it, but we're spending a lot of money on art of thinking. We're hiring art of thinking teachers. We have art of thinking curriculum. And that's third grade through 10th grade. It's a mandatory course for us. So um, how's, how's that test prep? What about all the money we're spending on career tech ed, on what we call dyad? Dyad is the, those martial arts, photography, um, spin bikes, things like that. And it's like, that doesn't feel like test prep to me. And so, I mean, it's the same old argument and it doesn't hold water then. It doesn't hold water now. People will raise it and I just have to keep focus. So Mike, you don't seem afraid to make controversial decisions. Some of which are going to offend a lot of people. I'm talking teachers, parents, elected officials. Uh, why not? One, because I'm, I'm old. But number two is... Look, I understand how change works. I understand what bold reform means. I, I am part of that reform group. I mean, um, that group of superintendents, John Daisy, Michelle Ree, Chris Barbick, Dwight Jones, Cami Anderson, all these folks who tried to do big things, all who got pushed back. And they did do big things, but it wasn't enough. Uh, and then all the superintendents that followed us who stopped reform because of the, the pushback. And not that we know more than everybody, but, you know, it is our job to know education. And um, 
no offense, hopefully, to anybody, but, you know, politicians don't really know that much about education. They don't know what's best. Uh, and it's going to be politicized, and that's okay. They have their job to do. So, you know, grace to everybody who's trying to do their job. But I got my job to do, and I kind of understand it. Uh, I understand what needs to happen. So we are in urgent situation. Urgent. We have been in for a while. And now it's even more urgent because of uh, AI. And so we can do things and tweak things. And that's how everybody, you know, wants you to do it. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what's best for kids. We've got to move the system. If I'm not the right person, that's all right. They'll find somebody else. But this is how I operate. uh, And I am totally focused on our students. Does the state take over aid you in that? Is it a tailwind or a headwind? You were put in by the state commissioner. And so this isn't a local move. Does that help or hurt? That is a great question. And and it's both. So um, it helps because we're able to do some things because the board of managers are not technically politicians, right? They're focus on what the district has to do to get out of intervention status. It's a headwind in the sense that people are already angry uh, and less willing to participate. I mean, some of the, some of the legislators or the politicians are already angry and predisposed to find fault um, because, you know, they're against it and they're, they may be running for office. And so they're going to continue to push that narrative. So that's a headwind. But on on the whole, I think it's a tail, you know, if I had to say one way or the other, we are getting more support because of it, because we we can kind of break some of the old systems a little easier. Um, it's hard to have a podcast with a superintendent these days without talking a little bit about COVID learning loss. You know, we've seen the pace over the past year, not necessarily in Houston, but in the nation, not fast enough not anywhere close fast enough to make up for learning loss. What are you doing in Houston to address COVID learning loss? So uh, I approach it like anything else. Um, HISD is almost back to where it was before COVID. So I approach it like this is where we are with regard to proficiency. This is where we are with regard to our systems. This is where we are with regard to our curriculum. All of those things are you know, no different. And uh, so I'm not uh, technically addressing COVID learning loss. I'm just addressing low, low learning and low proficiency. So it's not necessarily a separate issue. And the things that you're bringing to the system as a whole, and especially to the NES schools specifically, will address longstanding problems with these schools, as well as COVID learning loss. That's right. And if you think about it, the takeover was supposed to happen three years ago or four, four years ago now before COVID. So their, their systems were already not functioning well prior to COVID. So you've mentioned AI a couple of times. We've done a lot of talk on the podcast about AI. It's already in schools. Students have access to it. Teachers have access to it. How big of a shock do you think this is going to be to schools? And do you think in Houston that you have to change instruction as a result? I think it's going to be huge. And I think we don't have a lot of time. 
I'm not fond of committees, as you could probably see. I move pretty fast. We don't sit around, you know, forming a whole bunch of committees to make a decision. But I've put a couple together, and one that I'm going to be doing uh, over the next couple months is putting together just a blue ribbon committee of our people here in in HISD and a couple of people from the outside to help. And we're going to revamp our career tech ed programs starting in 24, 25. So a year from now, we'll put out the plan probably in March where we increase how uh, students can work with AI and what they need to be more successful in the workplace. And we're going to do courses for teachers on how to use AI to supplement their learning. We should have done it this year. We're behind. Um, And I think all districts need to do it. So we'll be doing it next year. We'll spend some money around it. It's now um, one of our, it's part of our Destination 2035 plan, but I've raised it up in order of priority. And so it will be a big initiative for the following year because it's here and we need to get going uh, on it for our, our students. Mike, let me ask you a question about the cost of reforms. In Dallas, there's been some work. We actually had some of the folks that did the study on Dallas on the podcast. And one of the things they found was, wow, the teacher pay reforms made a big difference. And then once the schools exited the status and the teacher pay kind of went back to normal, uh uh-oh, the marginal improvements to performance started to slide. So this raises some questions about using money, right? Do we have to sustain this level of teacher funding and in the hospital model, you're going to have to sustain high wages to keep these things productive. And, you know, we've had this long and tired argument about does money matter? So just in the context, is it going to cost more if these programs work to keep Houston's improvements that I know you expect to occur over the long term? So a couple things about that. So first, let me just adjust what you said a little bit. There's actually two reforms in Dallas. One was the pay for performance plan. That has not been diminished. It has continued to this day. And that is continuing to get good results, meaning more effective teachers are staying, the salaries stay high, and they're getting outcomes. The one you're talking about more specifically is the ACE program, Accelerating Campus Excellence. That is a program, you're right. Uh, It wasn't designed the way it turned out, meaning... The way I designed it, they were not supposed to just pull the plug, uh, you know, once the the school got out of D or F status, or in those days we called it IR status, improvement required status. It wasn't supposed to be that way. It was supposed to be a more tailored and more measured decline if it was possible to do so. So they they just kind of ripped the Band-Aid off once the school got out of D or F status. And that, you're right had a noticeable impact on achievement, uh, suggesting that you have to maintain the supports well after they get out of DRF status in order for the the systems to change and you can continue to get success. So your question is still relevant. So uh, the pay for performance plan that we're going to put in place will cost money, uh, but not that much more. And the NES program will also cost money, but not all schools will be NES. We might do NES again next year, three more feeder patterns, two more feeder patterns. That hasn't been decided. 
because this 57 schools kind of threw a wrench in some of our long range plans. The destination 2035 plan had us doing three more feeder patterns next year, but we've already had, you know, 57 more schools, which is equivalent to six feeder patterns volunteer. So we'll have to see, but I don't anticipate 150 schools being NES. What I do anticipate is all schools being paid for performance, except for NES will be on the hospital model. The other schools will be on a pay for performance model. Will that be more expensive? Yes, definitely more expensive. Can we afford it? Yes. Why? We can afford it because right now the district spends $250 million on contracted services. We had a bloated central office. We're going to save $35 million this year. It'll be even smaller central office in years in the future, which will save another $15, $20 million. So we'll be able to put the money we save into the salaries of teachers. $250 million in contracted services. Let me just give you an example. Uh, I won't name the vendor because they might get mad at me. But we have several vendors, not just one, that are providing services to principals to train teachers teachers on how, you know, what classroom instruction should look like. We are getting rid of all those vendors who train teachers and train principals. We have another group of vendors training principals. It's like, okay, first of all, we're going to hire good principals. We're going to train them ourselves, you know, and that's part of my job and the job of the school leadership department is to identify, coach, evaluate good principals. We do that ourselves. We don't need other people doing that. We don't need other people training our teachers. We're going to make the principals instructional leaders. If they can't train teachers, then, you know, I'll hire the consultant as the principal. You know, I'll figure it out. But you know what I mean? I'll save money that way. Cut out the middleman. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. We have middlemen all over the place in this district. So, and I've, I've, we can't get rid of all vendors. Don't, don't hear that because we do, we're a large district. We need some vendors, but people who coach people, people on the field, vendors who coach people on the field, those, those are gone. And that's a lot of money. Mike, you have an ambitious set of reforms going on. You got a big district to run and improve. I know it's hard to predict the future. Uh, how many years do you need before you think you're going to be able to show the results that you foresee? We will need to show results in one year. We know we can't turn around the district in one year, but we're going to have to convince people with data that this is moving in the right direction right away. If we don't do it in the first year, people will lose heart and the naysayers will be so loud, even though they know it takes more than a year to turn a ship this big. Um, but we got to show that the trim tab has turned. If they see the trim tab has turned and the rudder is starting to turn, I think that will hold people off long enough to get the rudder turning the ship. Uh, how long will it take to turn the ship? Four years. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus. A special thanks to our guest, Mike Miles. You can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute and leave us a review to help other people find the show. We want to hear your comments, questions, or topic suggestions. Send them to us at ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.